Live from the hills of Judea is the Land of Israel Fellowship with Rabbis Ari Abramowitz and Jeremy Gimpel. Shalom, everybody. Welcome to the Land of Israel Fellowship. Good to see you. We are on. It's technical difficulties are no longer. I'm really happy to see everyone. It's great to see your faces. Tar, good to see you. Ardell, I'm sorry you're going into surgery. Hashem should give you a refuash lema, a speedy and full recovery. Lisa, Esther, hi. It's so good to see all of you. Um, well, life on the farm, a tourist season has officially started in Eretz Israel. I mean, every day on the farm as a new adventure, I never know what groups, how they find us, the families that come, but Hashem just keeps on sending them. Every day is a new adventure on the farm. And the amazing thing is the Arugot farm is a little bit like our fellowship, not surprisingly, but somehow it's a magnet that pulls the best people from around the world. Somehow they make it to our farm and it's like a factoring system. It's just only the most spiritual golden people in the world somehow find their way to our mountain. And I know that in two weeks, um, a tour is being organized by members of the fellowship coming from Texas. That's going to be the highlight of that week. And just getting a chance to host fellowship members on the farm. I mean, think about what that looks like. It's like friends. Like we learn together every week. We pray together every week. We grow together. We cry together. It's like no one understands the farm. No one appreciates the farm like our fellowship. And we literally built the farm together. And it's like Switzerland and Mexico and Sweden and Germany. You just look at the chats. Look at the people. Look at the faces. And it's like Israel and the UK and Australia and New Zealand. And then they somehow come from all over the world. These sparks come stoking the fire and come to the headquarters. <laughs> it's like those are the best days. And, you know, everyone has place in the kingdom and everyone is tasked with building the kingdom of God in their life. That's literally tikkun olam b'malchut shaddai. That is the mission statement, to build, to fix the world in the kingdom of God. And anyone that tells you something else is just missing the mark. And the Arugot farm, that's our place in Israel, that we are doing our very best to quite literally manifest the vision of the prophets of Israel. How do we build the vision of the prophets in the land of Israel to build the kingdom together? And so when you see what we've done. It's just like nothing else. And so, um, but building the kingdom is not just building it in the land of Israel. It's building our homes. It's building our families, it's raising our children. And I have an announcement. One of our dearest friends is engaged. A member of the fellowship from the very first day, Renee Dupre sent me a message in Tehillah, a message this morning. Baruch Hashem, she is engaged. Another fellowship home is being built this time in Colorado. <laughs> and so one family at a time, one soul at a time, slowly but surely we're doing it. And so Mazal Tov to you, Renee. I see you here. I know you're like maybe a little bit shy on the camera. Okay. Mazal Tov. <laughs> and so we're just so happy for you. Baruch Hashem. And with that good news of new homes being built, that will be a light in this dark world. Let's start with a little prayer together. Hashem, master of the world, creator of all, source of all, nothing exists outside you. All your ups and all of our downs, all the good times, all the hard times, Hashem, help us through those times. In good times, let us fill our tanks for the road ahead. And in the hard times, please send us spice carts that we can see to help us find you in the midst of the chaos. Give us the light to banish the darkness Today is the 31st day of the Omer, and we are counting every day, waiting for your revelation in our lives. Guide us, protect us, bless us, bless everyone that's here today, bless everyone in our fellowship that's tuning in later. Help us connect our heads to our hearts, and may the Torah we learn be our prayers to you, and may our prayers be answered by your providence in our lives. Thank you for today. Thank you for this fellowship. Thank you for everything that we have. We take nothing for granted. At any moment, everything can be taken away from us, and we are so grateful for everything that we have. Everything in our lives is a gift. Everything is a blessing from you. Thank you for all of the blessings that you have rained on into our lives. May you rain blessing on all of Israel. And those who live with you 
as the ultimate good in their lives, as the king of all kings in their lives. Hashem, bless them, guard them, and bring them to your city on the hill. Yerushalayim, bimhe rabbi, amenu, speedily in our days. Amen. All right, my friends. So there is a lot to talk about. And as always, everything is interconnected. The Torah that we're learning, the time in which we're in, the calendar that we follow. And very soon this week is Lagba Omer. And it is the holiday of unreasonable spirituality. That's what I titled this fellowship session as. And I want to talk about what that means for us in our lives and how we can take this time in the Omer and just make this time more meaningful, more powerful in our lives. And, you know, in the middle of the night, fires are set all across Israel. I mean, it's such a cool holiday. It might not be the most environmentally sound holiday, but it's the coolest holiday in Israel. It's like uh, if a kid had to make up a holiday, they would make up Lagba Omer. It's like, oh, let's make a bonfire. We have marshmallows? We get marshmallows in this holiday? Great. It's like the kids' holiday. What? We can, we don't have to like, we can just, we can, we can drive. We can, we can do it. It's just like a fun holiday that was like made for kids. So kids love Lagba Omer, but there's a deep, deep spiritual meaning to the holiday really bringing that um, fire in the midst of the night. It was, uh, we commemorate, you know, the Roman occupation and all that happened then. And so Lagba Omer was a turning point. And so in order to really talk about the essence of what it is to bring the burning fire in the middle of the night, I want to bring Ari on. Um, and I want you all to know, I pray with Ari now every single morning. I wake up early and I'm at the synagogue exactly when he asks me to be there. I'm encouraging others to join so we can all pray together every single day. I'm there. And um, it's uh, it's it's quite remarkable watching him go through this process. It's just he's actually changing before my own eyes. It's really a marvelous thing. And so I, am, I don't exactly know what he's going to say today, but I know that it's going to be good because he is good. So Ari, take it away. Thank you, Jeremy. Very sweet. And uh, yes, you are there, but you're not there for me. You're there for Hashem. And uh, this is actually bringing, that's the idea, with the very idea of this chiyuv, this obligation that I have to be praying and to saying Kaddish and Minyan, is that my father, maybe he's out of the game right now. He's out of the game of life, but I'm still in the ring, right? And so I can still do things for the elevation of his soul and to bring light into the world. And uh, you coming to, to pray, it's changing you also. Is it, is it not fundamentally changing your day every day to have that? Because you always pray in the morning, always. But to now pray in a minion, that's a big chunk of time and that's a serious commitment. And I'm very grateful for it because very often, like this morning, we had exactly 10 which means that if you, Jeremy, weren't there, there wouldn't be 10 and we wouldn't have a minion. So that's a big deal. But anyways, we were talking about Lagba Omer. I, I, I can I just talk about that one point really quickly? Because it really has changed me. You know, I, you know, I am not a big religionist. That's the truth. And, you know, there's strict order of prayer every day with 10 men that are doing the same thing. I'm a very free-spirited person. And within the Jewish context, you are allowed to not daven in a minion if you pray with the sunrise early in the morning. And I said, you know what? I just want to be free spirited. I just want to do my own thing. I want to have my guitar. I want to do whatever I want to do. I don't want to be confined by the 10 people in a, in a place at the same time. I, I just, I, I, you know, I've done that most of my life, but moving to the Arugot farm, it wasn't even an option because I was alone on a mountain. And I sort of like went with that. And this is really the first time in my life since moving to the farm that I've been committed once again to going to morning prayers, like in a structured sort of religion type way. And I absolutely love it. I really do. I mean, I don't want to tell you that because then I can't like needle you like what a good friend I am, but I'm really doing it for myself. You'll needle I'm me really, anyway. really. I'm really enjoying the structure. And I think that that's the proper way to live in many ways within the context of the Torah to sort of like, it's okay that sometimes your soul is like calling you to be alone. And sometimes it's like, and to like live within the dynamics of, you know, just to be open to change 
and to be open to new habits and to new ways. And it could be that this might last for more than a 30 day period. Maybe it'll last a whole year, maybe last two years, who knows, but to just not get into rote. I think that is the ultimate goal in spiritual life is to constantly have hitchhut, to constantly be renewing ourselves, renewing our thoughts, renewing our prayers. And this new, it's kind of been a breath of fresh air to be praying with you every morning. And so it really has done wonders for me and I really, really enjoy it. Well, thank you, Jeremy. And I still count it uh, as what it is, which is you really being there for me in a very fundamental way. I appreciate it. And I appreciate the firm commitment that you've done uh, to really committing to do it for a full year. That's a big deal for you to commit to a full year. Anyways, uh, but we're talking about Lagba Omer right now. And, uh, you know, over the years when preparing for the fellowship, I try to dig really deep. And you don't always know what you're going to get when you dig really deep, deep into your soul. And, and I ask myself what Hashem has put on my heart to share that day. And, uh, you know, because the, teachers, the sages of Israel, they teach, that which comes from the heart goes into the heart. And so as I reflect back on the years of the fellowship, I'm already like seeing certain themes, patterns that return again and again and again. And perhaps the number one pattern that I see is bringing the light from the darkness. Every time I dig deep, it's like, that's what comes out, light from darkness, how to harness it, how to do it, how to live it, what that's all about. And I think the reason for that is because shining a light from the darkness um, is the national mission of the Jewish people. It's wired into our collective soul. You know, the prophet Isaiah says, we're a light unto the nations. Literally, that is our description. But the mission, it sounds fun and exciting and, oh, light unto the nations, but it's a really painful one. Because the way it works, you know, the heavier and deeper the darkness is, the more beautiful and inspiring and illuminating is the light that we're able to elevate from within it, right? So, so being a light means that we need to be very intimately acquainted with the darkness, perhaps more than anyone else in the world. And so we're going into Lagba Omer, and I wanted to share two examples of the most beautiful light shining forth from Zion right now. And so the first is the latest chapter in the devastating story of the D family, right? Who lost their mother, Lucy, and two daughters, Maya and Rena, who were murdered by jihadi terrorists. We've spoken about them before on the fellowship. And while many of pe people would have been overcome with hatred, the D family was focused on how they can extract and elevate every ray of light possible from this unimaginable darkness they were facing. And there's so many examples already that would make, we can make the whole fellowship just, just about that. But what I want to share with you today is what the D family decided to do with Lucy's organs. Because, you know, some people are uncomfortable with the concept of cutting the body open and removing the organs. But it is, it's an uncomfortable thought but it's widely accepted Jewish belief that it's a great mitzvah, uh, when it, you know, particularly when it saves lives. And so Lucy's heart was given to a 51-year-old woman named Tal Valencia, who is a healthy, athletic woman who suddenly was diagnosed with what would have been total heart, fatal heart failure. And, um, and it saved her life. She spoke so beautifully about how She's almost felt like a different person having the heart of such a tzaddikah, such a righteous woman in her chest. She said, you know, she said, when I realized I was accepting Leah heart, I collapsed. I started walking around the house, gasping for breath, muttering, I have a heart. I have it. She's realized she was, she was going to die. And she's not only receiving a heart, but a heart of this holy, holy, sweet, righteous woman. And, uh, and here you, here's a picture. I tried to get the video because I saw the video, but for some reason I couldn't get it. But this is a picture of the, uh, the D's surviving True. daughters listening to the mother's heart beating inside Tal's chest. How beautiful is that? You know, how remarkable is that? She's, the, Tal, with their mother Lucy's heart in her chest, is wiping the tears off of their cheeks as they're listening to their, mother, their mother's heart who continues to beat on. And here's a, here's a picture of a man named Mordechai. He's a 58-year-old father of four who's been waiting for a kidney for seven years. And here he is, and he just was receiving Lucy's kidney. And uh, yeah, you know, aside from Tal, 
and Mordechai, uh, a 58-year-old woman received her lung, a 25-year-old man received her liver, and a 39-year-old received her second kidney, and her corneas are, uh, will be transplanted as well. And so, you know, when I, when I heard the horror of these vicious murders, I could never have imagined such light being brought from it all. But just look at it. And I imagine re the real light hasn't even begun to shine yet. In this world, we don't even see the real light. And then last week, a horrible accident happened here in Judea in which another family has been unimaginably devastated. There's a car that strayed from its lane, causing a head-on collision with the Dominovich family from Tekoa. Um, all throughout the settlements uh, and, and throughout Israel, you know, we've been coming together and having special prayer sessions for this family's because it's just been so devastating. You know, in the family, there was mother and father, Eliyahu and uh, Ayala, or Eliyah and Ayala. And they were in the front, and their four children, Ori, seven years old, Netta, six-year-old, Shachar, four-year-old, and Mayan, 10 months, was in the back. And they're all severely wounded, some critically and others moderate, but baby Mayan died upon impact. Here's a picture of Mayan. See this picture of Mayan? Are you able to see that, Jeremy? That's baby Mayan who died upon impact. And uh, like the D family, the Dominovich family decided to harness their darkness to bring others light by donating little Mayan's hearts. This is the same week. And Mayan's heart is going to two different babies that are saving their lives. Here's a picture of the surgeon who uh, is performing the transplant that's going to be saving the heart of two different babies. Here's what he wrote. Dear Dominovich family, I know you don't know me. My name is Eitan, and I'm a resident in pediatric cardiac surgery. Last Wednesday on Israel's Independence Day, along with the rest of the people of Israel, I heard the terrible news. Um, he was talking about the accident that took Mayan's life. I never imagined that in the evening I would get a call from the transplant coordinator who had asked me to meet Mayan. She asked me if I would agree to save his precious, good, and innocent heart for a future donation of valves. Despite the enormous burden I felt, I agreed immediately and took my place that night in the operating theater to perform the surgery, uh, along with Alina Levy, who is responsible for heart valve donations at Shiva. Ayala, Eliyah, and members of the Dominovich, Dominovich family, I have no words to describe to you how beautiful and pure Ma'ayan was and how perfect his heart was. I want you to know that I treated him with infinite gentleness, with devotion, with endless diligence, and I even made sure that there was no scar. On that night, as a new father myself, Ma'ayan was the most precious thing to me. And I want you to know, Ayala, that the act you did in, in deciding to donate Mayan's organs is noble in a way that cannot be described in words. Your nobility of spirit no longer exists in our world. Since Wednesday night, I felt a, bit, uh, a little like a different person. I feel like Mayan is with me everywhere I go. And I promise you that Mayan's heart will save the heart of two babies who will need Mayan like they need air to breathe. I am sending you all wishes for a speedy recovery. Not a, not a day goes by when I don't think of you and pray for your recovery. I've been privileged in my life to help quite a number of children. I feel with all my soul that the privilege of treating Mayan was the greatest privilege of my life. His light is accompanying me. Thank you, Dr. Eitan Kaisman. You know, the sages say the one who saves a life, it's as if he or she saves an entire universe. And so one of the messages I think Hashem may be sending us as we go into Lagba Omer, right? A holiday that's all about the holiday of, of bringing light from the darkness is we need to think about how we are, we are bringing our light into the world. Lagba Omer divides the 49 days of the Omer into the first, right? It's the 33rd day. Lag, Lim, Lamed is 30 and Gimel is, is three. So it divides the first 32 days which is the numerical equivalent of lev, which means heart. And the last 17 days of the Omer, which is the numerical equivalent of tov, which means good, good heart. That's what Lagba Omer is all about, having a good heart and seeing the good in others' hearts. And we too can opt to follow in their righteous footsteps 
and we can make the decision now that if, God forbid, such a situation were to unfold for us, we too would want our organs to go to saving lives. There's many ways to bring light from darkness, but this is the one I just wanted to talk about at this moment. Because many years ago, when I first heard about this organization I'm going to tell you about, I signed up right then to be an organ donor. The organization I signed up to was called HODS, H-O-D-S, which is called Halachic Organ Donor Society. They, they do it according to Jewish law, meaning that it would be administered according to the halacha, according to Jewish law. But, but there are many different organizations. I don't know how it works outside of Israel. I don't know all the details. We can study them and we can talk about them later. But I think that, that that's one thing that has been sitting on me, that maybe that is just part of the direction of, of bringing light from the darkness that Hashem wants to convey to us. Because in the end of the day, our body is a garment and it can cease its purpose when our souls depart from it, right? Or we can squeeze even more life and more light out of it for others after our soul departs it. The decision is, is ours. But when I saw these two separate stories of two beautiful hearts saving two or even three precious lives, and the ultimate act of generosity imaginable, I just felt like this was a story that we should talk about. We're in a world filled with so much baseless hatred that ultimately the only thing that's going to bring Mashiach, that's going to bring redemption, is baseless love. I love you all, my friends, very much. And if, I, if it came down to it, I'd be more than happy to give any of you my organs. That's a weird way to end my piece on this fellowship, but I mean it. <laughs> Anyways, love you guys a lot. And uh, I'm eager to hear what uh, what you have to say, Jeremy. Shalom. Yeah, I, I actually I, I really like that. I really like that idea. Just very practical. You know, that's like a, just something that because in Israel, I think the law is if you do not sign up for um, kind of giving permission to give your organs, then they you they can't take them from you. So it's something you have to proactively choose to do in Israel. And so Tila and I also, as soon as we got married, that was one of the first things that we did is we also signed up. That just seems like the right thing to do. Like if something needs to happen, at least we can kind of bring more life and help more people in that. And, you know, I don't have the answers. Um, I don't think anyone can really answer the questions of the mysteries of the world of good and evil and why are there such hard times and how we have to do. I, no one really can understand things that are beyond our realm from the creator himself because we sort of like inside a computer, there's zeros and ones, zeros and ones, zeros and ones. The two, that's like not within the system, but like we have two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. We have many numbers, but inside the computer, a computer can only understand zeros and ones. So we just kind of only have like a limited view of like good, evil, what is this? This doesn't work out. So we just don't know because there's so many more numbers that could be outside of our own zero and one existence. And so but what I do know, when I look at the world, the most inspiring people, the greatest people, the people that have lived the most noble, marvelous, courageous lives are the people that have overcome the darkness, that have like worked through the challenges. And it's like within the fire of the challenges that they face, people like King David are brought into the world. People like the Maccabees are brought into the world. They're forged through that fire of the challenge. And like in the process of hitting the darkness and then turning that into the light, that's when people like the rebels of the Bar Kokhva revolt, Rabbi Akiva and Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, that's where they come from. And in some ways, that's really what Lagba Omer represents. That is the fire in the night that keeps on burning. You think about like where the Romans are today and where the Jewish people are today on the Arugot farm. One of our caves has fire from the days that Lagba Omer was established when the rebels of Bar Kokhva and Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai and his people were fighting off the Romans living in caves in Judea, that's maybe a 15-minute walk from Ari's home out into the wilderness. And so the Romans have like, a, like an archaeological site called the Colosseum, and around that cave are now vineyards that you can see behind Ari that are cascading down the mountains surrounding that vineyard. And so... Lagbaomir is remembering them, remembering their unreasonable faith, and remembering also the mistakes that these wonderful, courageous men made. It's like to take the past and to like to keep on refining it, learn from the good, learn from the bad, 
And I think um, I asked Tehila to really kind of give over her ideas and background about Lagba Omer to really like make it clear, like what are we celebrating and why does Israel just light up with fire on this mystical night? And so here is Tehila Gimpel to bring her light to our fellowship. So you're going to enjoy this. Hi, everyone. So tomorrow night is the holiday of Lagba Omer. If you're in Israel, you're going to notice children festively lighting bonfires and making you know, marshmallows and s'mores and maybe singing songs about the Bar Kokhba rebellion. You're going to notice droves of people going to Meron, the gravesite of the famous Tama'edic sage, Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai. You're going to notice lots of grumpy people, including myself, closing the windows and taking in their laundry to avoid all that smoke. And you're also going to notice that from this day on, people are going to stop observing the morning rituals that we have observed, uh, you know, during this Omer time from Passover until now, such as not getting haircuts, not shaving, not hearing live music, uh, not getting married and things like that. Now, if you're new to Torah uh, observance, or even if you aren't, it might kind of take the cake as one of the stranger Jewish practices. Lag Bomer doesn't appear anywhere in the Torah. If you look for a hint for it in the prophets, you're going to walk away disappointed. And even in the writing of the sages, it's like mentioned, but not in any way that really resembles the modern practice of Lagba Omer. And you really only see this developing later on. So what is this day all about? When we look at the sources, we might find ourselves with more questions than answers. If we go back to the ancient texts, there seem to be main three, three main, like, uh, main three contexts for uh, this holiday. So first, and like probably the most famous reference is in the Babylonian Talmud. In the Tractate of Yevamot, we learn that about the death of the students of Rabbi Akiva. Rabbi Akiva was probably the greatest sage, surely in his generation, maybe ever. Um, and although he only began to study at the age of 40, he was arguably, uh, you know, really like the greatest scholar. Now, we're taught in the Tractate of Yevamot that the students of Rabbi Akiva, that Rabbi Akiva had 24,000 students, and they died between Passover and Shavuot. And it says in the Talmud that they died uh, in some kind of plague because they were not respectful to one another. Now, there's a question if they actually, what they actually died from, because the Talmud says that it was a plague, like an illness. Um, some have argued that maybe it's hinting uh, to the fact that they actually died in the Bar Kokhba rebellion, which we'll get to in a moment. Sometimes the Talmud had to censor itself so as to not create suspicion to the Jews. You know, there was a fear that, uh, you know, of anti-Semitism, so maybe Jews wanted to kind of like quiet down their, you know, the stories of the courage and rebellion against the Romans. But either way, we have this idea that the students of Rabbi Akiva died on these days. So that's the conventional explanation for why we don't shave or get haircuts or get married or listen to music during the counting of the Omer. Uh, but we also know that all of that mourning and sadness stops, uh, according to most, on Lagba Omer. So there's an oral tradition written down by the sages in the Middle Ages after the Talmud that this is because on Lagba Omer, the students of Rabbi Akiva stopped dying. So that's, you know, reason, kind of direction number one. The second sort of direction given for why we celebrate Lagba Omer is maybe a little bit connected to that source and that it's this idea that this is a day that symbolizes Jewish rebellions against the Romans. There's not a whole lot of historical evidence like exactly why it's Lagba Omer. This was something that was very much like emphasized though by early Zionism. Um, perhaps it's because, as I said before, maybe Rabbi Akiva's students died in the rebellion. There's also some evidence from Josephus that the previous rebellion, the Great Rebellion that led to the destruction of the temple, um, happened around this time of year. Some people have said that, you know, the idea of lighting bonfires was how people used to signal the beginning of the rebellion for one another. Uh, there was also an ancient tradition of children, uh, like doing archery games on Lagba Omer. So some people believe that this is because the rebellion was like at you know either a successful battle or maybe began on Lagba Omer. The third direction has to do with Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, the great sage Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, who was a student of Rabbi Akiva, was considered the greatest Jewish mystic who brought who passed down the mystical tradition. And there's a tradition in the Zohar, the greatest mystical writing, that Rabbi Shimon died on Lagba Omer. So here's the thing, all of these could be an explanation for why it's like a meaningful time, but none of those explanations seem to tell us why it's a happy time or at the very least a time that we stop mourning. Like if you look at all those reasons, they don't seem very happy. What does it even mean that the students of Rabbi Akiva stopped dying? Like a plague of deaths ended because they were all dead. Like we know from other sources that Rabbi Akiva's students totaled 24,000 and what Rabbi Akiva put into getting those students, we're told that he left his wife for 24 years to teach all those students. Just think about like, your average Ivy League college in America is, 
you know, 20 something thousand students in, in Hebrew University in Israel that has six campuses. There are 23,500 students. I looked, I Googled that today, right? Like imagine if all of the doctors, you know, all the medical students and all the law students and all the social work students, all the psychologists, everybody was just studying Torah. And that's like what the loss was. And then think about the rebellion, both the Great Rebellion uh, before the destruction of the Temple and the Bar Kokhba Rebellion after that ended in tremendous tragedy, the destruction of the Temple and the exile of the Jewish community. Why would we want to celebrate that? And if it's the third reason Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai died on that day, is that a reason to celebrate? We lost the greatest Jewish mystic? Like, you could literally take all of these explanations and use them as a perfectly reasonable description of why we would have traditions of mourning, not as reasons for stopping mourning. They don't seem happy at all. This seems absolutely nuts. But when you look a little closer, I think you can learn something really deep from the kind of, you know, like meeting of all of these different uh, reasons that have been brought for this special day. Let's start with Rabbi Akiva. What we learned in the Talmud is that there was a serious chance that all of Torah would be forgotten. But then, after all the students died, Rabbi Akiva started a new yeshiva, and what we're taught in the Talmud is that he only had five students, five students that essentially carried on the Torah as like the leaders of the oral tradition for the next 2,000 years. His students were Rabbi Meir, Rabbi Yossi, Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, Rabbi Yehuda, Rabbi Elazar, and it says that they alone continued the Torah. We learn that if you read like a random Mishnah that's not attributed to anyone, which is most of the Mishnahs, you should attribute it to Rabbi Meir, who was a student of Rabbi Akiva. We're taught that the Midrash is to be attributed to those students of Rabbi Akiva. If you read a mystical work, it's attributed to Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, a student of Rabbi Akiva. So to understand the magnitude of who Rabbi Akiva was and what he did and what his students did was that basically through the funnel of Rabbi Akiva and his five students, all of the world of Torah essentially was reborn. And then let's look at the rebellion. It's true that the rebellions ended in disaster physically, but imagine a world where we hadn't rebelled. Let's say we hadn't rebelled against the Romans. It's not so hard to imagine what our fate would have been because we can look at all the other places that were conquered by Romans and didn't rebel. The Jews never gave in. With the last bit of strength that we had, we rebelled and the temple was destroyed and we rebelled again and we lost again. But the spirit was that the whole world can be Roman. Everyone can say that the world is one way, that this is truth, but a Jew wouldn't bow. It's the Maccabee spirit. It never died. It was that spirit that although we were physically crushed, we were sustained for 2,000 years of exile. It's that spirit that allowed us to survive. And then look at Rabbi Shimon. Yes, Rabbi Shimon died that day. Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai died that day. But the mystical tradition teaches that at his bed, while he was dying, he he shared the secrets of the mystical Torah. And it says that his bed was actually consumed with fire. There's like a thread going through all these stories. If you put together all the reasons for Lag Baomer, they all concentrated in one period of time, that time at the end of the temple, but the beginning of like a new type of Torah, a new type of Judaism, like everything was destroyed and everything starting over. The world of Torah was destroyed. Like when you think about the sheer amount of Torah that could have been learned from 24,000 scholars just going around Israel and teaching Torah, it was all destroyed, but what did we get? We got a whole new way of learning because before that the oral Torah had been an oral tradition being passed down, but because of the death of all of these students, there was an actual fear that the oral tradition would be lost. And then for the first time, the oral tradition was written down. We got the Mishnah, we got the Talmud. It became accessible, ironically, to more people than ever. We're still studying these texts. So while our, look, and then look at the, look at the rebellions, our physical destruction, you know, our physical nation and, and temple were destroyed, right? But the fighting spirit was like immortalized that would you know that spirit that would allow us to rebirth with the reestablishment of the state of israel after two thousand years and it's the day we lost rabbi shimon but we gained the revelation of mystical you know secrets that would sustain us for two thousand years of exile spiritually so maybe that's the secret of lagba omer like and, and and of the jewish people as a whole maybe that ability to see lagba omer as what, although it looks like a sad day, to see it as a day of the end of mourning, it's like we don't deny the sadness. We don't say these are happy days. We say these are the end of mourning. We say like we recognize the sadness. We mourn, but we also stop mourning. The Jewish people are special because we stop mourning. Like Rabbi Akiva, he saw his entire work crumble. It would have been so easy for him to despair and say like, okay, this whole thing isn't working. And how easy would it have been for the Jews to, after the first rebellion was crushed, to just say, whatever, enough. Let's just get along with our Roman occupiers. But they didn't. You know, Rabbi Shimon had to hide in a cave 
for years and years because he spoke out against the Romans. Like he could have just said enough. Why do we have to keep fighting? But he didn't. And it's like all of those things unite the reasons that we have for Lagba Omer. You know, my son Akiva, I love his school. And they, they're studying now the subject of how to keep your faith in Hashem in the face of tragedy. And so the kids were asked to go interview somebody who kept their faith in the face of a horrible thing. And so my son, our son Akiva decided to interview Rina Ariel, whose daughter Halel was killed by a terrorist in her bed. And he said, he asked her, um, you know, like, how did you, you must have had a crisis of faith. How did you overcome that? And she goes, why do you think I had a crisis of faith? She said, I had a crisis and I have had faith. I didn't have a crisis of faith. I had a crisis with faith. And then she went on to tell our son how, you know, all of what, you know, everything that, that she did, that she does, and everything her husband does to, to commemorate Hallel, you know, uh, creating love, you know, fostering love of the land and love of the Temple Mount. And, you know, that's, that is, she, that she was like encapsulating that spirit. Um, and, you know, that, that's the spirit that sustained us throughout 2,000 years of exile. And I think there's another thing here. You know, the Rabbi Akiva dusted off the world of Torah, dusted off that tragedy, and created the world of Torah from 5,000, from five students. You know, he didn't try to make a huge yeshiva again. He had 24,000 students. But look carefully at what the Talmud says. He says they didn't treat each other properly. That's why they died. Now, that's so strange of all reasons, because we know that Rabbi Akiva always emphasized teaching, love your neighbor as yourself, love your neighbor as yourself. He taught so many students, but they didn't really get the main idea, the message. And then he taught five students, but what students? In a whole world of darkness, five people really got it, and they taught the entire world. You know, Rabbi Shimon, one person taught the entire mystical tradition that eventually, you know, sustained us for, for 2,000 years. And we live in a world where quantity is so often, you know, taken as proof of something being right. Like, follow the experts, we're told. Look how many countries condemn Israel, we're told. In the time of the, you know, before the Holocaust, Zionists like Jabotinsky warned that a disaster was coming, but they were a minority and the majority wanted to stay in Europe and, and, and didn't believe him, didn't believe the Zionists that this, you know, disaster was coming. A lot of people here, even in our own fellowship, probably have an opinion or a way of, you know, seeing things that's different from people in their community or even their own family. And people say, look at everybody else. You're the one who's figured it out. And it's like Rabbi Akiva tells us that Torah is not always discovered by following the majority, but sometimes it's by a few that are willing to be loyal to that which they know to be true. And from them springs forth a transformation, a greater understanding. And so maybe this holiday is also a tribute to those you who don't follow the crowd but are willing to be a small voice of truth that reverberate, you know, great courage. In Devarim 7.7, it says that Hashem chose us not because, he says, not because you are more numerous than any people did the Lord delight in you and choose you, for you are the least of all the people. Like it says that Hashem, Moshe tells us, Hashem did not choose us because we are the majority and we have the majority opinion that everybody listens to and that's really popular. No, he says, you're the least you're the fewest. You're the quiet, small voice. But because you and your forefathers followed me, that is why Hashem loves us, right? That's why I love you, Hashem tells us. And so perhaps, you know, this holiday is a tribute to that spirit, that spirit that's willing to be a small voice that speaks the truth no matter what everybody else thinks. That that voice, that's you know, that, that small group that's willing to say no matter what happens, we dust ourselves off, we get back up, and we keep on fighting, we keep on going. That is the spirit, and, and you know, it's an interesting thing. Most holidays, we kind of look at them as having a diminishing value. Like if you look at Pesach, you know, Passover, how we celebrate it today is nice, but it's so diminished compared to how our forefathers celebrated it with, the, you know, the, the temple and the, and the you know, Pesach offering. And there was so much more, you know, think about our, our forefathers celebrating Shavuot. They didn't just have, you know, prayer in the synagogue or in their homes, but they were able to bring the Bikurim, bring the first fruits to the temple. Like everything seems so much richer. And today it's like just a shadow of what used to be. The Lag Ba'omer is a really interesting holiday because it seems like a holiday that every year is getting stronger and stronger. Like when I was growing up, Lagba Omer was like hardly a big deal, hardly a thing. And like with every year that goes by, you hear more and more Lagba Omer celebrations. More people are like looking into this and studying it and talking about it. It's a holiday that, you know, really uh, developed so much more recently and it's become so much richer than it ever was in the past. And maybe that's a sign that that spirit of Lagba Omer and everything Lagba Omer represents is getting stronger and stronger with the return from the exile and the reestablishment of Israel. Like that spirit of 
of, of rising up from the dust, that spirit of coming from the destruction of the Holocaust to creating the state of Israel, that spirit is awakening and getting stronger and stronger every day. So with that, I wish you guys a happy and meaningful Lagba Omer. Bye, everyone. Thank you. So that was from our scholar and expert, Tehila Gimpel, gave us the whole background. And I just want to now take what she said as the base for the um, kind of taking it up a level. So Lagba Omer, in some ways, is the holidays really reminding us never to settle. It's to be unreasonable. That's really what the holiday is about. It would have just been, okay, there's actually a saying, when in Rome, do what Romans do. That's a saying for a reason. It would have just, we don't have to fight the Romans, just assimilate. But the rebels of Lagba Omer, who camped out in caves by the Arugot farm, were unreasonable believers. And where the Romans are today, with an old broken archaeological site called the Colosseum, and here we are with the vineyards of the Arugot farm around the caves of those rebels. And why? Because they were believers who refused to just go with the flow. They were believers who were unreasonable. It's a holiday of light. It's like we light bonfires all across Israel. And the fire of the mystical retora that was revealed into the world, it just, you know, how it was like one man who had the prophetic tradition. And he said, this prophetic tradition is going to get lost. And he wrote it down alone, 12 years. And it just took one person alone in a dark cave, persecuted by the enemy. That's what brought the light into the world. And so imagine Ari's talking about what does it mean to be a light unto the nations? What does it mean? It's like we have to demonstrate to the world that darkness can be transformed into light. It's like in that encounter when the Romans are coming against us, that's when the light of Judaism was really brought into the world for us to enjoy today. It's like light overcoming darkness is the most beautiful thing of all of creation. And here's the deal. God is not love. When people say that, I think it's a misunderstanding. It's like a misunderstanding of the Greek or modern mind trying to understand the God of Israel. God is not what man feels for his wife or what a mother feels for her child. God's not human. And so it's a mistake to use human physical words for a non-human spiritual reality. But what is true is that we can feel sometimes if we're fortunate enough, God's love in our life. We can feel his presence. We can feel his love. That doesn't mean that he is love. But that means that that's the heart of it that we can feel. The Baal Shem Tov, who was the primary student that brought the mystical Torahs to the world maybe 300 years ago, says like this, what is emunah? Emunah is the experience of Devekud. It's not something that you believe or something that you've won an argument. Now you've proven God exists. No, it's it's when we feel so close to God that we can feel his love in our life. We see our children. We see the source of all love, the source of all light. When we have that encounter, that is emunah. That is the shekhinah. That's what we need. It's in moments of encounter when we can sense God's presence in our life. We can live a guided life. As soon as we try to wrap our mind around God, put him in a box, put him in a word, put him in a concept, a theology, you've already missed the mark. So in, in that way, emunah is actually something that you can lose. Once I say, listen, God is this, I don't ever have to lose him. But when we realize that God is an experience, we can lose that experience. I mean, you can feel very close for a few days, for weeks. And then the next day you wake up and you feel distant. You feel far away. You can read King David's writing. He's like, my soul is thirsty for you, Hashem, like a deer in the desert. I'm yearning to be close to you. I'm so alone. I'm so far. Please help me close to be. I just want to connect. It's like you can understand there's like highs and lows in a real authentic spiritual walk. And there's closeness and distance in an authentic relationship with your wife or your husband. There's going to be times of real intimacy and times of distance. And that's real. It's not like you can just put the, well, listen, I have a ring on your finger. That means that we're always just happy with each other. You can ask Tehila. That is not the case in my marriage. She's just not always happy with me. I try, but there's times when I'm good and there's times when I'm bad. And that's just the reality of living in the real world. But our actions affect our perspective. What does that mean? That's when you can really understand what Yirat Shemaim is. We're seeing fires blare across Israel. And you just think like, oh, it's to see. It's Yirat Shemaim is, to, is people say it's to fear of heaven. But it's really, it's to see heaven in our lives. Yira comes from the, the, like, to see. But it's not that we fear that God is going to punish us. 
It's fear of losing the closeness that we have with God, violating our relationship with him, our affections, our actions affect our perception. And so in some ways that actually is perhaps the understanding or maybe a little bit closer to the understanding of what biblical faith is. The more you feel connected, the more you feel at one with Hashem, the more you feel his presence in your life, the more you feel his love in your life, that's that's the stronger your faith is. Not that you have the right arguments or you have the right theology. It's like the more harmony you feel with this world, the more you are connected to the oneness where Hashem, who Echad, you're a part of that oneness, you're close to him, you haven't alienated yourself from the source, you're plugged into the source. That's Kedusha. Then you can like, then the whole world is filled with his glory. But someone said to me on this fellowship from our last fellowship, he's like, Jeremy, listen, I don't feel it. I want to believe. I think it's a better life. It's a better life. I know that marriages that have God in the center, they're a better marriage. My children, if they have God in their life, they'll be better children. I know it, but what can I do? I just, I, I'm too rational. I just don't see it. I want to see it, but I'm, if I'm being honest, it's really hard for me to just experience God's love. Like, what do I do with that? And so I said, you know, it's not supposed to be easy. Some people, you know, they just have a direct connection to God. It just comes naturally to them. They're lucky. They have an I, a high SQ. There's like an IQ of the intellect. There's an EQ. Ari, for example, has the highest EQ of anyone that I've ever met. He just has this emotional intelligence. He's just an EQ Einstein. But there's also people that have an SQ, and they're just naturally very spiritual people. Now, I'm just a regular guy. I'm not a naturally spiritual. I don't think I have such a high level. I have to work on that and I have to work hard and it's not supposed to be easy. It's not like emuna is something that's just like given. It's something you have to work on. And it's also something that if you violate, it can be taken away from you. You can mess up the reception. And that's actually what Ezekiel in chapter 10 is teaching us, that we have a spiritual antenna. God doesn't change, but then Israel is like watching God's presence leave the temple and leave Jerusalem and leave the land of Israel. But if God is one and God is unchanging, how is his presence leaving the, the land of Israel? It's like he didn't leave anywhere. We changed. We could not, the way that Israel was living in the time of Ezekiel, as we're worshiping idols and we're living the lifestyle that we were living as a nation, our eyes could not perceive God's presence. God's presence left because that's what we did. We banished his presence from our life. He didn't change. And so what is prayer actually there for? It's not to change God, it's to change us. It's to allow us to open ourselves up to bringing his presence into our life. That's why prayer is tefillah. It's not to beg. Prayer in English is a Latin word that means to beg. Tefillah is reflexive. It's something that we're doing to ourselves. Authentic Hebrew prayer that we do every day. We're not trying to change God. God has the perfect plan for our lives. He knows exactly what needs to be done. He's not a cosmic bellboy that we're like, ding, God, I would like some more money. Ding, I would like a wife, please. Ding. No, that's 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 not the right way to see God as the cosmic bellboy that he's there to deliver all of our needs. The right way is to say, God knows best. I want to align my will with his will, and then my life will be blessed. It'll be plugged into the source, and then I'll be a reflection of his light and light up everything around me. That's the source of blessing. So it really is to sort of straighten out our spiritual antenna that we can receive the guidance that we need or feel the love that we want to feel or feel the connectedness that we want to feel. That's what the mitzvot are for, to eat kosher, to eat, eat clean food. You eat like, I'm, if you eat, pig, it's actually going to affect your spiritual reception. If you're like not doing good things, you're going to miss the, like, it's for us to help us connect to him. And so, you know, here's, um, Irat Shammai. you know, I, I terrified. I'm terrified, not of God, but of losing my intimate relationship with him. And this whole world right now is designed at putting us to sleep at literally severing that tie to like cover up, to cover our heart. You know, that's what Solomon says, to have a listening heart. That's what his one wish, the wisest of all men was the wisest of all men. Because in one wish that he said, he said, God, in chapter um, three in the book of Kings, he says, may you grant your servant a lev shomea, a listening heart to judge your people and to distinguish between good and evil. How was he known as so smart? Because every time he needed to make a decision, he was able to tune in. He just asked for a clear spiritual antenna that if I need to go out to war, do I need to take taxes? What do I do now? He had a listening heart. And that's what made him known as the wisest of all men. He didn't have necessarily the highest IQ, but every decision that he made, he was able to tune into exactly the will 
the right will. You're like riding the right wave. And so, you know, sheep, they don't understand me. I take the sheep out now every Saturday. And I think about them a lot because, you know, David was out there with sheep in the same mountains. I don't know if he went out every Friday. He probably went out every day when he was younger. And I'm like, the sheep, they don't understand me. They have no idea that they're guarding 15,000 dunams of state land. They have no idea that I'm there teaching my children, having quality time with them. They don't understand what I'm doing there, but they trust me. I whistle. I go, and they follow me into the mountains. Unbelievable. They know that I want the best for them. They see that I'm feeding them. They see that I'm guiding them to the waterhole. They know that I know that they need a drink, and they know that he, I'm the shepherd, and they're following the shepherd. And it's, you know, I, I know where the best pasture is after the rain. So they're just happily following me, having no idea what are my thoughts, what my purposes are. I'm, they're serving such a higher purpose than just grazing. I mean, they are literally the guardians of the land of Israel. They have no idea what their purpose is. They don't understand me, but they don't need to. They just trust the shepherd. And then I thought about Psalm number 23. And I, it, in some ways, it's like the heart of Lagba Omer, it's the heart of what it is to be a believer. If we can get it up on the screen here so we can read it together, because you know, this psalm was read at Queen Elizabeth's funeral. And the I don't know, there was a Christian tradition that turned this into a sad psalm because it says, As I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I shall fear no evil. And in some people's association, it's kind of a sad psalm. But when you read Psalm 23, you actually can sense a little bit of what biblical faith is what David's faith was, and it is the happiest of all Psalms. So Psalm 23, it starts like this. David was out in the mountains, and he's shepherding his sheep, and the sheep don't see him. He, they're down in the mountains, in the valley, and he's taking them where they need to go. And I imagine him kind of thinking to himself, you know, I don't always see Hashem in my life, but I know that he's guiding me to where I need to go. Ah, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not lack. It's like I shall not lack. I got, I'm his sheep. Oh, I did. Oh, I know. If if he's my shepherd, I know now. He lays me down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He makes my soul rejoice. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. That's not a sad line. That's saying a sheep is walking through the valleys there. In David's time, there were lions. There were bears. It was scary also for David, who knew what creeped behind every corner. And he's saying, listen, I walk. I know that this world is a very narrow bridge. There are car accidents. There are terror attacks. But I walk through the valley of the shadow of death every time I get into the car. But I fear no evil because I know that you're with me. Your rod and your staff comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. I am blessed beyond measure. I just have everything that I need. Surely, goodness and mercy shall chase me. It's not even follow me. I'm being chased by God's goodness. Like a sheep that goes off the, the path, I have to go run after him because he might get lost. I'm chasing him and protecting him. And David's saying, I know, I am just being chased by love and goodness all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord for all days. Understanding that, living that is absolutely unreasonable because David is saying, I don't understand the shepherd. I'm, I'm, I realize that I'm a sheep. He, all I can do, he's like whistling to me. Maybe once in a while, I'll get a staff and a rod. I'm just going to follow the shepherd. I'm going to trust in that. That's not reasonable. And what we learn is that that's the only way to live in this world is to be unreasonable. Reasonable people are going to eat junk food, be addicted to sugar, and spend their time on Netflix being brainwashed by the woke and zombified by the world. And there are forces in the world that in order to overcome those forces, you have to be unreasonable. You should love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and all your might. That's not saying just be normal, be reasonable, give a little charity, you know, maybe go to synagogue, go to church once a week, you know, just do the thing. No, it's saying take this life seriously, love life, love your family with all your heart, with all your soul. Normal people, normal people are going to get normal results. And normal people are unmarried, unhappy, and unsatisfied, and on antidepressants. You do want to not be normal. Normal is not a good thing. We want to be abnormal. We need to be unreasonable because unreasonable people are different. Jews are different. Lag Baumir is exactly that. 
people say, Jeremy, do you still get into a freezer of ice every morning? And I tell them, yes, I do actually. Not every morning, but if I can, almost every morning, I want to do that because it's unreasonable. It's a product and a testimony of what happens. If you choose to love God and to love life with all your heart, in all your soul, in all of your everything, it's a testimony. Watch what happens. Life will be different. It's, you know, I'm still not shaving. I mean, I look like a homeless guy. I hate not having my beard kept and my hair is like all disheveled and I have to wear a hat. It's just, it's unreasonable, but that's the point. That's the point. If I want to feel Jewish history and I want to empower myself with the kohot, with the spiritual energy of Israel's past, if I really want to feel it, then I, what we lost in the Roman occupation and the Torah that was destroyed and the temple that was destroyed, I'm not going to feel anything unless I do something unreasonable and not shave for 32 days. And then maybe if I'm lucky, I'll finally be able to feel a little bit of what I should feel. And here's one of the reasons why I admire Jordan Peterson. You know, I, he staked his life on this one rule, never lie. And I think he actually might be missing it on a Torah perspective, because the Torah says there are some times where there is shalom is sometimes overrides lying. But okay, he's not like a Torah person. He's That's his religion. Good for him. He's unreasonable about that. Excellent. It's a great example. He will not lie. It's unreasonable. And that's a source of his greatness. That's what we need. Just to, to, I love watching short documentaries about the best athletes in the world. I mean, to be the best basketball player, if you watch history about Kobe Bryant or Michael Jordan, they are the most unreasonable people. They train every day, their consistency, their work ethic. It's not reasonable. That's the point. They're not normal, but that's why they're the best. So I watch these people and their dedication and their passion. And what are they doing? They're throwing a ball into a loop with like a circular ring with net tied to it. And I'm like, can I not be as passionate about my children? Can I not be as dedicated a husband? What's wrong with me? These people are so fired up and doing something that literally has like no real inherent meaning. They're bouncing a ball and throwing it into a thing. It's like, I'm watching their dedication to this sport and it's absolutely unreasonable. And it lights a fire in me that I want to be unreasonable about the things that are truly important to me. I want unreasonable results. I want an amazing relationship with my children. I want to have deep friendships that I cherish. I want Tehillah to be happy with me all the time. And that is unreasonable. I want to have a good marriage. I, I Listen, I, I have a dream. And if I want Tehillah to love me, even though I have all my mistakes and my blunders and my, I, I want all of them just to be specks of dust on the wide horizon. 20 years of marriage, I've made so many mistakes. As a father, I've made so many mistakes. I've had so many regrets and blowouts. And But look, as like our swords have crashed against each other in our marriage, we've both become sharper. I mean, my dream is to live with Tehillah. And, and it's like, I just, only through all of the challenges are we are who we are today. It's like what built us. And if you have a dream and you're working towards, it's in that process, you're going to incur a lot of disappointment, a lot of pain, a lot of failures, and normal, reasonable people will just give up. But every time you dust yourself off and you only have five students left, you had 24,000 students, now you only have five, it's unreasonable, just give up. And it's like, nope, dust myself off keep the eye on the prize. And then in that, it's like you discover greatness that 2000 years later, all of Israel is lighting fires, remembering the great sages of Israel that saved the Torah and Rome is gone and Israel is rising up. And you'll discover that real love can only be achieved through hardship and challenge. And anything worthwhile can only be achieved through hardship and challenge. And so Tabitha, she just ran a marathon in Prague. That's unreasonable. I run like four, five, six miles, maybe 42.2 kilometers. That's unreasonable. But that's what Tabitha, that just makes her awesome. And thank you, Tabitha, for everything you do for our fellowship. Even from Prague, behind the scenes, nothing would work without you. And here now, connected once again, we're in the heart of the book of Vaikra. And what is that? It's about korbanot. Now, all of us know that korbanot doesn't just mean sacrifice, but it comes from the word korban karov, which means close. But think about that for a second. Don't let that just become a cliche. From a sin that we've done, we're bringing a sacrifice. It is literally the act of turning that darkness into light. It's unreasonable. 
After a sacrifice, there was no experience in the world that brought you closer to God. You would walk away from the temple and the Shekhinah was in your life. And you're telling me, wait, I didn't sin. I was doing okay. I'm closer to God now than I ever would have been. Like that darkness that I that I felt, the darkness that I experienced is what brought this new light into my life. It's like when you encounter the evil, the reasonable thing is to give up. Get cynical, become nihilistic, hopeless, so much darkness. Who needs this? Just become a Roman and that's it. It's like, no. In Lagba Omer, we're called to be unreasonable. And we're given the power, if we take it, to transform the darkness into this beautiful bonfire of light. And so I want to bless everyone in the fellowship. Whatever the world throws at you, be blessed, be encouraged, and know that in that challenge, in that darkness, that's going to bring us closer to who we were meant to be. It's going to sharpen our swords. It's going to make you stronger and greater. In that pressure, it's like a diamond that's being created. And so, Bezrat Hashem, we should all grow into who Hashem created us to be and bring that light, the light of Hashem, through us to everyone around us. Become greater, become stronger, become better, become more holy, become a better father, a better mother, a better husband, a better wife. Let this time, let this Torah be our prayer and let it enter into our lives and bless everyone around us. Hakol, 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 tamid tova. Everything, everything should be for the good. May you all be blessed, my friends. Yevarechecha Adonai v'yishmerecha. Ya'er Adonai panav elecha v'yikoneka. Isa Adonai panav elecha. Yasem lecha shalom. Shalom, my friends. See you again soon. I hope on the Arugot farm even sooner. Shalom. To join the Land of Israel Fellowship, to attend our live interactive Zoom sessions, to participate in the Fellowship Connection Q&A events, or even just to binge on past sessions, click on the link below or go to thelandofisrael.com backslash fellowship and join our family of hundreds of people from around the world broadcasting light from the land of Israel live from the Judean frontier.